0: It was dark, stars shone faintly against the black open sky, waves pounded rhythmically against the shore, and my heart pounded against my chest. In my hands, a small box, which represented a watershed moment and a question that would change most everything about my life forever. In that box, of course, was a small diamond ring with a wish trapped inside it. I summoned the courage to speak the words that anyone who was observing me down on bended knee would know I was saying. Will you marry me? Chelsea laughed incredulously. Are you serious? She said. Perhaps it wasn't the best idea to propose on April Fool's Day. (laughs) And that after about a month or so of dating. Nevertheless, I figured that if things didn't go quite well, I could just say I was joking but I had planned to extract from her the response I so desired. And so uh, after some time and employing my powers of persuasion, she tepidly agreed we were engaged. That moment and that question changed the course of my life. As so we come to Mark chapter 11 this morning, we come to a moment in Jesus' life that will change everything. He's setting himself on a course which will not be changed. And we come to a question the question that Mark has invited us to ask throughout his whole gospel, the question that hangs over the whole Who is Jesus? Mark's given us the answer in chapter 1, verse 1, saying that Jesus is the Son of God. And that's what he wants to show us in our passage this morning. It's your main idea there. You see it on your insert. Jesus is the promised King, the Son of God. And in light of that, the exhortation is quite simple. Worship Him. He is worthy of your worship and your honor and your praise and your delight. Worship Jesus. Our outline's there before you. You can see uh, three kind of quick sentences to explain what's going on in this text. Jesus' entrance is an announcement. Jesus' announcement is acknowledged, and we'll see that Jesus' purpose is unexpected. There's a lot of um, explanation this morning to get us to see who Jesus is. And how big and wonderful and loving our God is. Let's pray and ask for His help now. Father, we come before You this morning expectantly. We open Your Word knowing that in it You have promised to speak to us. Speak, Lord, Your people, Listen. Help us to hear what you would have to say to us. Lord, meet us here in this time. Fill this place with the presence of your Holy Spirit. Do not allow us to leave here unchanged or unmoved. Enlighten the eyes of our hearts that we might discern those things which are spiritual. Give to us your Holy Spirit. God, we come desperately in need of you. We confess our sins afresh, trusting that the blood of Christ is faithful and just to cleanse us from them all. Lord, we we come hungry and thirsty. Meet us here. What we have not give us, what we know not teach us, And what we are not, make us. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we we kind of jump into our text, it's helpful to understand the whole kind of map of Mark. And really, we can understand this gospel, this biography of Jesus, in three major acts or arcs. Act 1 goes from chapter 1 up to chapter 8 and verse 22. And in this particular section, Mark is concerned with teaching us all about Jesus' authority. We see Jesus go from place to place and perform miracle after miracle, healing after healing. I mean, there's a whole litany of them. And they're aimed at teaching us Jesus has authority over over every realm. Over the natural realm and the supernatural realm. Jesus cleanses lepers. He calms storms. He walks on water. He feeds thousands with just a minuscule amount of food. He raises Jairus' daughter from the dead and much more. All to the end of demonstrating his great authority and power and prompting us to think about that question of Mark's gospel. Who is Jesus? The second act runs from verse 22 of chapter 8 to the end of chapter 10. In this particular act, Mark is aiming at clarifying for us who Jesus is. These particular chapters feature Peter making that great confession that Jesus is the king, he's the Messiah. And Jesus explaining to Peter that he's not the kind of Messiah that the Jewish people have expected. And that brings us to the last act of Mark's Gospel, chapters 11 through 16, which are just made up of a single week of Jesus' life. The last week. It's For this reason, many have said that Mark is really a passion narrative with an extended introduction. Why so much time and space to this one week in Jesus' life is because this one week is defining. It was for this week Jesus would accomplish those most significant events for which He was born. The reason that God became a man, took on flesh, was so that He could become vulnerable. Could become killable. So that He might die on behalf of His people. Indeed it's at this moment in chapter 11 with the entry of Jesus into Jerusalem during this Passover week. This moment would set Jesus on a path to the cross. It is the week of Passover which means Jerusalem has swollen to about 3 times its usual size. The town is a buzz with all the Passover festivities and talk of Jesus has circulated. He's coming and people know it. This is the stage we find ourselves on at the beginning of chapter 11, starting with verse 1. say, the Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? They told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks upon it, and Jesus sat. On it. Jesus makes a whole lot of preparations before he enters into the holy city. So the question is, why? We've already provided the answer, right? Point one. Jesus' entrance is an announcement. He is declaring himself as the messianic king of the Jews, the long-expected one. And the way that he makes what amounts to a visual announcement is by orchestrating all these events together. And as we'll see, the crowds will understand just what it is Jesus is saying. And so he has a strategy, he has kind of three planks in Mark. Two planks we see brightly, and the third one is a textual connection. So, so the first plank in Jesus' plan to go public is geography. It's geography. You see there in verse 1, they are at the Mount of Olives. Mount of Olives. Now Mark very rarely in his gospel mentions place names. They're not really concerned with geography except to tell us that Jesus is moving from Galilee in the first act to the Gentile regions in the second act and now into Jerusalem in the third act. And so when he mentions place names, it is significant. We go, well, where have we heard about the Mount of Olives before? And we, we start to run through our little memory palace and think about our knowledge of the Old Testament. We go, all right, the Mount of Olives, it shows up that the first time David is running away from Absalom when Absalom tries to act the usurper. So he's fleeing Jerusalem, he flees to the, to the Mount of Olives. Solomon builds idols for his foreign wives to worship at the Mount of Olives. Ezekiel witnesses the glory of God leave the temple and rest on the Mount of Olives just prior to the exile. That that one's making some connections. I don't think it's without reason that we never see the glory of God return to the post-exilic temple. And here we have God in the flesh. Jesus, the radiance of the glory of God, standing on the Mount of Olives. And he's getting ready to go into the temple. Yet the return of God's glory to the temple will not be a triumphant one. Rather, Jesus will come to curse the perversion of the temple. and ultimately to replace it with himself. Indeed, the temple, as he will say later in chapter 11, has become a den of thieves rather than a house of prayer. We also see later on that the Mount of Olives is the place from where Jesus cries over Jerusalem's refusal to repent. It's also the place where Jesus ascends into heaven, and the place to which he promises to return, which brings us to the most famous passage which features the Mount of Olives, Zechariah chapter 14, verses 4 and 5. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward, and you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Israel, and you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. This passage speaks of the final judgment of mankind. And thus the rabbis and later Josephus tied it together with all kinds of messianic connotations. Jesus stands on the Mount of Olives as the Messiah. But surprisingly, he hasn't come to bring judgment. Not during this first Advent. Rather, this Advent, he stands upon the Mount of Olives preparing to bear judgment on behalf of his people. He stands preparing not to ride into Jerusalem as the conquering king, but to ride into Jerusalem and to be conquered on behalf of his people. He's a king who dies. It's a little bit oxymoronic, crucified messiah. It's like saying frozen steam. It doesn't make any sense. And yet Jesus often surprises. Mount of olives helps Jesus to present himself as a king, as the messiah But he's doing more than that. He's presenting himself not just as a king, but as the king. And part of how he does that is not just through his geography, situated upon the Mount of Olives, but through the second plank. A donkey. Why? I mean, this, this part of the story is weird to us, right? Why does Jesus, he's walked everywhere, he's not ridden upon any animal, but why does Jesus, when he's inside of a mile away from his destination, all of a sudden decide that he needs to procure a mount and a donkey at that, right? I mean, we would expect Jesus to, to you know, like get up on a war horse and, and ride in, and I kind of... Kind of picture it like if you've ever seen the movie Gladiator or like anything where somebody's coming back to Rome and there's just falling rose petals, the victors riding upon the horse. This is kind of, that's what I would expect, but that's not what Jesus does. He calls for a donkey. Now you might be tempted to think in our historical moment you know, that a donkey is more suited for a child or a hobbit rather than a king. But you would be mistaken. It was quite natural for Jesus to call for a donkey if he wanted to present himself as a king. It's what many before him had done. They would ride upon donkeys. Maybe the best example is King Solomon. Look with me at 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 32. King David said, Call to me Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada. So they came before the king. And the king said to them, Take with you the servants of your lord, and have Solomon my son ride on my own mule. That's a donkey. And bring him down to Gihon. And let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet there anoint him king over Israel. And then blow the trumpet and say, Long live King Solomon. Jesus isn't just styling himself as a king, he wants everybody to recognize that he is the final king, the ultimate king, the king they have waited on, the one they would call Messiah. He is deliberately fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9. Mark's always a little bit more subtle in his gospel. He doesn't tell us this explicitly. He expects us to figure it out. But but if you look at Matthew's gospel and John's gospel, they say right out there in front, this was in order to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Zechariah. And this is what Zechariah says. Rejoice greatly, O daughter Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold. Your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt. The foal of a donkey. Jesus' entrance is designed to be an announcement and he is using his geography and his placement upon the back of a donkey to declare that he is the king they've been waited on, that the rumors they've heard about him raising the dead and healing the sick and causing the blind to see are true. He's the king who's been long awaited. Mark also gives us a third plank, and I think it's just for us readers. It's a little bit more obscure, but I think the textual connection is strong. Did you notice how many times the word tied or untied are featured in our text? Right? So, he says, you'll enter the village, you'll find a, a colt tied. If anybody says what they're doing, tell them you'll bring it back immediately. You found a colt tied outside in the street. They untied it. And some of those standing there said, what are you doing untying the colt? It shows up about five times. What What is is going on here? When you see words or phrases repeated in the scripture, it's usually like a, a flashing light that's meant to alert you that the author is making a point that he anticipates you are going to have some level of biblical knowledge and be able to draw the connections he wants you to draw. But before we get to the connection, I do want to point out, this is a brief application, the need to read your Bible. You go, Whoa, that's profound, Pastor. It's, it's not new, it's not new. It's not clever. But how many of your Bibles do nothing more than gather dust during the week? The original audience of this text knew the Scriptures well. They understood what Moses said when he declared to the people in Deuteronomy, this word to you is no empty word, it's your very life. Indeed, the original audience hid the word of God in their hearts that they might not sin against him. They were able to recognize right away without being told, oh, the Mount of Olives, significant, donkey, significant. And it's my contention, they would even be able to see this tying, untying thing, of, oh, I know the connection. That sort of thing's usually not the case with us. I mean, we're distracted by social media and smartphones and the internet. We waste our time in things that are ultimately not of much value. Friends, read your Bible and read your Old Testament. Many of you have already discovered how the Old Testament serves as a sort of backlight to the New Testament. Helping us to see it in more vivid and full color. We walked through Leviticus and Exodus in the past. You see those themes cropping up again and again and again throughout the New Testament. God's Word is a treasure to you. Study it. If you want want a really good example about how the Old Testament helps us to understand the New, you might just this afternoon flip to the book of Hebrews and read. The author is very intentional about showing us all the types and shadows in the Old Testament and how they pointed towards the cross, how they pointed to Jesus. The Bible is ultimately the story of God making promises and God keeping promises. It will be helpful to you in reading Scripture if you read all the promises. So what about this business of tying? I think... By employing this term that Mark wants us to draw a connection between the language. where it shows up in Genesis 49, chapter, or chapter 49 and verses 10 and 11. Jacob is blessing Judah. and He says this, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, Until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of peoples, tying his foal, that's a donkey, to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine, and his vesture in the blood of grapes. This verse, these verses are filled with messianic expectation. The only other time you've probably heard this verse read, unless you worked through Genesis, was in connection with Jesus turning water to wine to show that he had arrived, that the kingdom of God was showing up in a person and that God was bringing blessings with Jesus. Likewise here, I think John wants us to, to draw this connection and see the one who comes, whose donkey is tied and untied and tied, is the Messiah. The Messiah has arrived. And so we, we see these, these three kind of planks in Jesus going public with his messianic identity. The geography on the Mount of Olives, his situating himself on the back of a donkey, and then Mark's notes, admittedly more obscure, about tying and untying. Additionally, I think we should notice that Jesus isn't just claiming to be a king in Mark. Mark wants us to understand Jesus as the Son of God, as Lord, as God Himself. And throughout, not only Mark's Gospel, but all the Gospels, we find Jesus employing supernatural knowledge. Jesus knows things He's not supposed to know. He he tells Nathaniel that He was sitting beneath a a tree. He tells the woman at the well of her sexual exploits. Even in, in Mark, He tells the paralytic who who comes hoping to be healed, and instead of healing him right away, he says, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees are there, and they're going, wait, who can forgive sins but God alone? And they're just thinking it, and we read, Jesus perceives their thoughts, and he says, so that you may know the Son of Man has the power to forgive sins, I say to you, get up and walk. Jesus knows things. How is that relevant to our text? Well, because we see that Jesus just tells them to go and pick up this colt, this donkey. And the question is, did Jesus arrange this beforehand? Right? He would have been familiar with the city. He certainly could have made plans for his disciples to come and, and get the donkey from the owner. That, that makes sense, but I don't think it's right. I think we're to understand that Jesus is utilizing supernatural knowledge here. He knows there's a donkey there. He's planned for it, in eternity past, and he's sending his disciples to get it. It's an expression of his sovereign control of the situation. It's funny, though, if you think about it. All right, you two go, go grab that donkey for me. You can see them kind of like creeping up to the, they see the donkey and they're like walking in the town, looking around, you know, like they're about to break into a car or something. Like, I think that would be the equivalent, Right? Uh, there's, a, there's a Lamborghini in the first town you're coming to. You'll find it, get in it. The keys are in it, and just bring it back here. And if somebody says anything, you just say, uh, the Lord has need of it, we're going to bring it back right away. Like, I just don't think it's going to go well. So they're, they're sitting there, and they're, they're untying the donkey, and of course the, the, the call comes, hey! And it's not even the owner, it's just people standing around, hey, what are you doing with that donkey? And they're like, you see him like doing like the Jedi mind trick kind of thing. The Lord has need of it, and we'll bring it back here immediately. And The Lord has need of it, and we'll bring it back here immediately. right? And, And they take the donkey so that Jesus can ride upon it. Here's the point that we've been driving to. Jesus has orchestrated all of this so that he might give to all those who are around a visual proclamation of his identity. Throughout Mark, there is this very famous what some call a theological problem, it's not a problem, called the messianic secret. Because what happens is Jesus will go and, and heal and perform miracles, and then the people that he heals, or the miracles that he performs, the people around the scene, he'll say, they'll be like, you're, you're the Messiah. And he'll go, yes, that's right, but don't, don't tell anybody. Right? Our secret. Don't tell anybody about it. And the reason he doesn't want them to tell anybody is because he has planned not to bring about his death until the appointed time. And so now, in Mark chapter 11, Jesus is going public. He's unveiling himself. He's revealing himself as the long-awaited Messiah King. And so the point of all of this preparation in the first seven verses is so that Jesus can make an announcement with his entrance into the holy city. And amazingly the people at least in part understand this announcement because they acknowledge it. Look with me at verse 8. And many spread their cloaks on the road and others spread leafy branches that they'd cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting Hosanna Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. What's going on with their reception of Jesus? Well, they're acknowledging his announcement in a few ways. Right away, it's obvious that they're acknowledging his announcement by laying down their garments on the road. Right, uh, we roll out the red carpet for somebody that's really important. They lay down their garments. Right, we see the same kind of picture uh, when Jehu becomes king in 2 Kings chapter nine and verse thirteen. This is what we read: They hurried and took their cloaks and spread them under him on the bare steps. They blew the trumpet and shouted, "Jehu is king." They're laying down their garments. They see Jesus announcing himself as king, and they are saying, as they act out, saying, this is our king. This is the king. The second thing we see that they are acknowledging Jesus' kingship is these leafy branches, which John tells us are our palm branches. Thus, the, the title Palm Sunday. But, but the palm branches are significant for this reason. Uh, They had become a national symbol in Israel. So in 164 BC, a guy named Simon the Maccabee was at the center of what we know as the Maccabean Rebellion. And he drove Syrian forces out of Jerusalem. And he was celebrated. They celebrated the victory with, with music, of course. Maybe even some dancing, I don't know. But definitely, the waving... Palm branches. So you see, palm branches are not some docile, celebratory item. They were a symbol of revolt and rebellion. They're a declaration, a sign of a Jewish nation rising up against its foes. So when people begin taking up those palm branches, it's akin to, to the French singing the French National Anthem in occupied France during World War II. It is an act bordering on insurrection. It is very dangerous. So much so that Luke's Gospel records that Pharisees in the crowd say to Jesus, rebuke your disciples! Get them quiet! Stop this! And Jesus says, if these are silent, even the very rocks would cry out. Indeed, they are acknowledging that he is the king as they lay down their garments and they wave their palm branches. This is the one who's going to cast off the yoke of Rome. So they think as they acknowledge Jesus as king. Another acknowledgement is through these shoutings of Hosanna. Now this is actually a pretty normal thing, right? We we read during our scripture reading Psalm 118, and so pilgrims during the Passover festival, when they would come into Jerusalem, they they would sing or chant portions of the Hallel Psalms back and forth to one another. The Hallel Psalms go from chapter 113 to chapter 118 in the book of Psalms. And if you're, you want to be, it's not that hard, right? Hallel Psalms comes from Hallel, Hallelujah, right? Hallelujah means praise the Lord. These are praise the Lord Psalms, right? Now, Hosanna simply means save us, we pray. Lord, save us. And so on your way to Jerusalem, you might say to someone, Hosanna, right? And they'd, they'd, they'd respond back, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And you would you'd make your ways. It's quite normal. Actually, we're, we're going to try this a little bit just so we can get the feel, Okay. Uh, it's unfortunate that everybody who sits on this side decided, decided to be absent this week. Um, but but you guys, I'm going to give you guys the easy part, okay? You're going to be group A, and so your line is going to be, listen now, Hosanna, okay? And you're going to have to be loud. You too, Mike. Hosanna, that's your line. You're group B. Group B, you're going to say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You got it? All right, all right group A, it's, it's your time to shine. All right, then, then group A would say, this one's going to be harder, blessed is the coming kingdom. Is the coming kingdom. Your line's Hosanna. Hosanna. And so that's, that's how they would go into the holy city for the Passover week. But notice... If you would read Psalm 118 and and the verses from which this blessing is taken and you would compare it with what Mark has recorded here, the crowds have put a twist on things. You see, they say, blessed is the coming kingdom, and they add, of our father David. They are recognizing in their shouts of Hosanna that Jesus is the one who comes in the line of David to sit the throne of David. They are understanding the king has arrived. You know, the champ is here, right? They're going, this is the one. He's going to deliver us from all of our enemies, all of our foes. It's going to be fantastic. Hosanna, praise the Lord. Lord, save us, save us now. Save us from our enemies. Hosanna in the highest. They acknowledge Jesus' lordship, but their understanding is incomplete. They're right to recognize him as king, but they're wrong about the timing. They're thinking second advent, but this is first advent. Jesus isn't coming to accomplish political goals. He has a vision that's much bigger than breaking the yoke of Rome. His goal is to break the yoke of slavery and sin. His goal is to be victorious over death itself. His desire is to die on the cross for the sins of all who repent and put their faith in him and then go down into Hades and snatch the keys away from the devil when he rises again. He is master over death. He is master over life. And his plans are better than the crowd's expectations. Their messianic fervor is in a fever pitch. They're ready for a revolution. Here comes their king, mounted on a donkey. The palm branches are waving. It's time. Verse 11. and he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. That fervor, that that excitement, he's going to lead us to victory. Except, Jesus does nothing. He gets into the temple. looks around. This is Peter's eyewitness testimony in Mark. You see Peter recalling. He just looked around at everything. Yawns. All right, boys. That does it. Let's get back to Bethany. We're staying with with Mary and uh, Lazarus, the guy raised from the dead, right? Yeah, great. They got a futon or something. You couldn't stay in Jerusalem because it was so full, so they're, they're staying out in Bethany during the Holy Week. And it's like, let's, let's head home. Mark is the only gospel that includes this, de- this detail here. So we, why? Right? Everybody else just jumps right into the temple and, and Jesus you know, flipping over tables and, and doing all the rest. Why does Mark give us this detail? He wants to underscore the fact that Jesus is not the Messiah that they expected. He's not the king that they anticipated or had hoped for. Notice, all the enthusiasm of the crowds in verse 10 has evaporated in verse 11. It's quickly there and quickly gone. Indeed, once Jesus gets closer and closer to Calvary's hill, his friends become fewer and fewer. Even the twelve are scattered. Jesus says they are like sheep without a shepherd. I think we're to take a warning here, brothers and sisters. Do not mistake enthusiasm for faith. Don't mistake excitement about what you hope God will do with submission to his lordship. Crowds are gone when it becomes clear that Jesus is not going to meet their messianic expectations. I wonder, how do you respond when God doesn't meet your expectations? When you don't get the job that you wanted? When your spouse dies? When you just feel so alone? What challenges your faith in God? Your family situation or your health? Friend, trust God. Even When he is acting out his purposes in a way that you don't understand. Even when God's plans don't line up with your expectations, trust him. Don't ever doubt in the dark what God has said in the light. He is Faithful. The crowds leave Jesus. The enthusiasm evaporates. And Jesus knows what it is he had done. He has provoked the events that will lead him to death. We know he knows it. He tells the disciples in Mark chapter ten, verse thirty-two. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem. Jesus was walking ahead of them. They were amazed. Those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, Jesus began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death, deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, Spit on him. Flog him. Kill him. And after three days he will rise. And then in verse 45, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus knew that when he announced himself as king with an entrance like this, the end of that entrance was agony. Indeed, he had come to take his throne, but he had committed himself to beginning his reign from the cross. Listen, Jesus is brave for some reason it's easy to miss that jesus is brave he he knows exactly where he's headed and he goes anywhere i mean i mean we when there's a, a possibility that something bad might happen to us run for our blankets and some bubble wrap Jesus stares down the barrel of a gun and resolves to suffer. He's going to suffer for you and for me beneath the wrath of God that we deserve so that we, all who have faith in Him, can enjoy the blessing that only He deserves. I mean, imagine it with me. Jesus is standing there on the Mount of Olives. The disciples have gone to fetch the donkey and feel the earth beneath His feet. He knows the place. He created it. He planned to stand just here before the foundation of the world. Breathes deeply, tries to steady himself, and he hears the echoes of the temptation Satan once whispered in his ear. All the kingdoms of the world I will give you if you will worship me. There's, there's no need to suffer. and Him recalling the words of His Father. You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. Catching the donkey approaching, saddled with the garments of His disciples, Jesus smiles, sets Himself upon the donkey, sets His face towards Jerusalem, and sets off the events That end with his crucifixion. Oh friends, Jesus is brave. When you you see Jesus being brave for you, this is why he goes to the cross, right? Gospel in four words, Jesus in my place. Right? The essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. And the essence of the gospel is God substituting himself for man. Jesus is brave, going to the cross to substitute himself for you, church. And when you see that, when you see that kind of love, that kind of resolve, that kind of bravery, how can you not respond to God and say, I'm yours. I'm yours. Whatever you want, I'll do it. You, You want me to serve? I'll serve. You want me to love the poor, I'll love the poor. You want me to foster, I'll foster. You want me to uh, attend church and encourage the saints, I'll attend church and encourage the saints. You want me to suffer, I'll suffer. You want me to die, then I'll die. I'm yours. I trust you. You died for me and my life is in your hands. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but he who lives in me. How can you not be all in on Jesus, on this God? Jesus is so brave. Christian, you you should sing at what Christ has done for you. I mean, so quickly did he go from riding on the back of a donkey atop broken branches on this day to hanging on a tree on Good Friday. For you, so that you might sing this, the power of the cross. Christ became sin for us. Took the blame, bore the wrath. We stand forgiven at the cross. He's worthy of your worship. He's worthy of your whole life. Christian, resolve to be brave for Christ. To bravely obey Him when it's hard. To bravely trust Him when you just can't see the dawn and the night is darkest. Non-Christian. We come to a moment and a question. The question that hangs over Mark's gospel is, who is Jesus? And he has taken pains to prove to you that Jesus is the promised King, the Son of God. We Christians believe this. We believe that Jesus died for sins, was put in a tomb for three days, and then rose again bodily. We believe that He is returning the second time, not on the back of a donkey, but on the back of a war horse with a sword to bring judgment for all those who persist in rebellion against their Creator and King. And we Christians implore you to acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord. He alone can make you right with God. He alone can forgive your sins. He alone can give you the satisfaction that you are longing for. He alone can bring you into relationship with the God you were made to worship. And so I implore you, I invite you, I beg you, trust in Jesus. He is a good and mighty King. Worship Jesus. How you answer this question will define you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for this opportunity to gather together to honor you, to worship Jesus, to hear from you. We pray that we wouldn't view your word as an empty word to us, but as our very lives. We we pray that we would not grow complacent or comfortable with the cross, but that we would be unsettled by it, that we would recognize what it costs to reconcile us with you, that we would see the penalty of our sins, that we would recognize Jesus spilt his blood so that we might have life. Lord, help us to see and to meditate on this and to delight in you, to delight in Christ. He is our King. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen.